Good morning. My name is Kevin, for those of you who don't know me, and today I'm going to be speaking in, in Jeff's stead, and we're going to be talking today about the futility of life without God. Dan, is it possible to turn me down just a little bit? I'm, I'm hearing myself. That's a little better. You got, Johnny, can you still hear me at the back? All right, good. In the last half of the 1700s, there was a famous mathematician. His name was Simon Laplace. And Laplace was brilliant. And he, he brought forth a lot of theories that we still use today. And one of the theories that really made him famous at the time, though, was he fixed Newton's laws of planetary motion. See, Newton originally developed these laws of motion, but they weren't quite right. His laws were, were almost there, but they predicted that over time, the planets would become unstable. And of course, we know the planets aren't unstable, and so Newton's theory was every once in a while, God came in and kind of tweaked it. Just kind of adjusted it to keep it going. And Laplace said, no, I think we can do better than that. And he developed a theory which fully explained planetary motion. Now, Laplace had a relationship with Napoleon, and Napoleon called him in and says, tell me about this theory of yours. And Laplace did, and Napoleon said, where does God fit into it? And Laplace said, famously, he said, I have no need of that hypothesis. Now, Laplace was not saying God doesn't exist. He was saying, I don't need God to interfere in these equations for them to work. But that phrase, I have no need of that hypothesis has been used by many people as, you know, they, they like that. They use it and say, well, do I need God? No, I have no need of that hypothesis. God doesn't exist. Back in the first century, the Apostle Paul would have come across a lot of people who, if they had known that phrase, might have used it. The majority of the world at that time did not acknowledge the existence of a creator God. Only the Jews and, and the new Christians would have known about him. And Paul didn't have a whole lot of, of, um, of respect for the worldview that came outside of, of one that starts with God. And in Ephesians 4, we read Paul say, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, when Paul says Gentiles, he basically means those philosophers and those who follow philosophers outside of the Jewish worldview. Now, he's writing to the Ephesians, and Ephesus was an important center in the Roman world, and it was geographically and philosophically very close to Greece and Athens, which was the center of philosophy. And in those days, it, it's kind of hard to imagine, but in those days, the philosophers were the rock stars of the world. People really admired these guys, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics and the Cynics and the Aristotelians and all these guys. And Paul is saying, all those guys that you revere, they're out to lunch. They don't know what they're talking about. And his words are really harsh here. He says they're... they're he said they're ignorant. He said they're separated from God. They're darkened in their understanding. And their thinking is futile. Now, last week, I want to home in on the word futile. Last week, Rick gave, gave us a definition of futile. 
And if you didn't hear Rick mes Rick's message, go back and listen to it. It's, it's really good. And I'm going to steal some of his stuff. Futile means aimless, pointless, meaningless, without purpose. But the Greek word also carries some, some darker tones. It means perverse, twisted, and depraved. So these are, these are harsh things. Paul is saying that the philosophy of those men and women who rejected God was futile. And you kind of step back and say, whoa, Paul, I mean, chill out, man. That, that's pretty harsh. I mean, are you really saying those who disagree with you, their thinking is futile? Isn't that a little bit overkill here? Well, today we're going to dig into that, and we're going to explore three topics of life. Uh, the existence of morals, free will, and the meaning of life from the perspective of one who acknowledges God and the, from the perspective of one who says, no, there is no God. And we'll, we'll talk about what, what the results are. So we're going to start out with morals. And I'd like you to think of some words. Think about what these things mean to you. Good, bad, evil, noble, right, wrong. All of us intuitively understand what those words mean, don't we? We, we get that inside of us. These are things which are very important to us. They form how we view the world. They're things which we teach our kids right from the get-go. They inform our, our passions, they inform our politics, even our entertainment. If you think of the, the huge, hugely popular movies, the, all the Marvel super, superhero movies, and the Lord of the Rings, and the Star Wars, and Avatar, and, and Harry Potter, all of these are movies which collectively made staggering billions of dollars, portraying almost cliche conflict between good and evil. And our society went and watched these because those are concepts that resonate with us. We get that. It's very important to us. Now, just to be clear, people disagree widely on what is good and what, ev what is evil. We don't agree even in this room. There's going to be very, very different ideas of what is good and what is evil. But no one disagrees that there is a good and an evil. At least almost no one. Uh, if you've ever seen the, the um, television series Sherlock uh, that stars Benedict Cumberbatch, the last episode, he meets his most nefarious opponent, the most brilliant and, and difficult challenge. And we meet this opponent through kind of snippets of conversation that she has with others. We hear her talking with others. And one of the things she says at one point is she says, there's no such thing as bad. Good and bad are fairy tales. Good isn't really good, evil isn't really wrong. And when we hear her say that, we know right off the bat, okay, she's a psychopath and she's a lunatic. Because normal people don't think that way. Sane people don't think that way. So the question then arises, where do our moral beliefs come from? And there are really only two options. Option one is they were given to us by God. Option two is we came up with them ourselves. There's no middle ground there. If we were given our moral values and duties by God, that means they are objective. When I use that word objective, I mean it doesn't matter what we think or how many people have opinions on it. 
It is the way it is. There's no vote taken. It is a law like the law of gravity. If we came up with these things ourselves, whether it's because of evolutionary processes or cultural uh, trends or tastes or styles or, or even based on some model like utilitarianism or consequentialism, at the end of the day, these things are subjective. They depend on what people think, what trends are, and to some extent, you could say they're a convenience because they're convenient for the propagation of our species or for the good running of society. And it does not carry the same weight as if they are objective. And the question you might ask is, does it matter whether they are objective or subjective? And the best way to explain that is to give you a quote by Rebecca, Rebecca Manley Pippert, who said, if you say there's no such thing as objective morals, then child abuse is not evil. It just may not happen to be your thing. That's kind of powerful, isn't it? And, you know, there was a really good example of the difference between objective and subjective morals at the conclusion of the Second World War. At that time, hostilities had ended, and the Allies rounded up all the Nazi leadership, and they brought them to the city of Nuremberg, where they were going to try them for the crimes they had committed. As we all know, the Nazis did some bad stuff. And they wanted to hold these guys to account. But the Nazis had a really interesting defense. They said, what right do you have to judge us? We were not breaking any laws. Those were the laws of the land. Now, you guys won the war. If you want to have revenge on us, fine. There's nothing we can do about it. But don't tell us that your laws over there in England and the United States are better than our laws in Germany. And this had the prosecutors really stumped. And they're like, how do we deal with that? And at one point, one of the prosecutors lifted his arms and says, surely there is a law that's higher than any nation's laws. And of course, he's right. But what he did is he let slip that at heart, all of us really believe that there is an objective law that we are to follow. Think about it. Why did the Tutsis in Rwanda hate the Hutus? Why did... Irish Catholics hate the English, and Serbians hate the, the Kosovar Muslims. We don't hate and fight and kill because of a difference of opinion or a different style or a trend. We do those things when we perceive that an evil has been committed, when some object, uh, objective standard has been violated. So the question that comes up is if this is our lived experience and we all intuitively know that good and evil are real, how do you explain that in the absence of God? Well, the most common answer that I've heard among philosophers who, who don't accept the existence of God is that those thoughts are, are an illusion. They're things that we're convincing ourselves of to make life easier, to make society run better. And so, there's a disconnect there. This is our life experience. This is the world as we know it. The worldview that's based on God aligns perfectly with that. The worldview that's based on there not being God conflicts. It says, no, you're imagining things. That is an illusion, that what you're thinking of. So Paul would have said, that's kind of futile. What about free will? Well, again, free will is something which is central to who we are. It's how we conceive of ourselves, how we view others, and again, how we shape society. 
we talked about morals a moment ago, and morals are based on this idea that people can choose. They can decide between right and wrong. In fact, we talked about, we, we thought about those words, right and wrong and good and evil. What do they mean if we don't have free will, if we can't choose? But can we choose? Can we really choose? Do we have free will? Well, to answer that question, I'd like to start by talking about bowling. Yeah, I like bowling. Bowling's a great sport. It involves a whole family. I'm, I'm not very good at it, but it's therapeutic. Just get rid of your energy, tossing that thing down the, the lane. The thing about bowling is, the moment you let go of that ball, its future is fixed. It's following the laws of physics, and it can't decide on where it's going to go. In fact, if you were to measure the velocity of that ball and the mass and the friction between the, the lane and the ball, you could predict exactly what pins are going to go down in your lane or the next lane over. <laughs> Another example, the orbit of a planet, Saturn. If you know the gravitational attraction between the planet and the sun and you know all the little asteroids and bits that are going to hit it, you can predict tomorrow and next year and a million years from now exactly where that planet's going to be because the planet can't choose. Its future is fixed. It's following the laws of physics. So what about us? What about our minds? Can we choose? And the answer to that question comes down to whether or not you believe there is a creator God. Because if there is a God, he is by definition supernatural. He exists outside of our natural universe. He is beyond the world of matter and energy that we know it. And if he's created us in his image, we have some supernatural in us. As Christians, we call that our spirit. And the spirit is not bound by physical laws, so we can have free will. We can decide. If there isn't a God, if matter and energy are all there is, then our mind and our brain are exactly the same thing. There's nothing outside of that. And our brain is made up of atoms and molecules, and they follow physical laws exactly the same way as bowling balls and planets. They're different laws, but they follow them nonetheless. And in the same way as bowling balls and planets, if we knew enough about the mind and the stimuli that come in from the outside, we could predict what we would be thinking a month from now, a year from now, even what kind of pants Paul would be wearing next year. We could predict it all. Exactly, exactly. Now, of course, there are a few problems with that view, um, that we don't have free will. And, well, no, nope, let me take a step back. I skipped a bit. So free will, I, if you think I'm exaggerating, this is a very common perspective among philosophers, that if there is no God, we really don't have free will. In fact, I saw an article in The Atlantic recently called, There's No Such Thing as Free Will. And it says, and I quote, the sciences claim that all human behavior can be explained through the clockwork laws of cause and effect. The article also goes on to say that even though free will doesn't exist, we really should act as though it does because our society runs better. And you can see the irony there. It's telling us what we should do what should mean if we can't choose. 
So there are a few problems with, that, with this idea that we don't have free will. One is that's about as fundamental a thing as we can think of to our concept of ourselves. Every day we get up and we make hundreds of decisions. Am I going to brew coffee or am I going to ask my wife to? Am I going to run that yellow light or am I going to stop? Am I going to pay my taxes or am I going to protest them? It, you might know um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. He's the CEO of Facebook. And he recognizes that when you make too many decisions, you get exhausted. He always wears a gray hoodie because he says, I make decisions all day long. The last thing I want to do is have to decide what I'm going to wear. It's, it's exhausting to make too many decisions. So that's one thing. It's, it's, it's fundamental to our, our view of ourselves in the outside world. But there's also a deeper reason. Free will means that we can choose to take actions that affect the world around us. This is a concept called agency. And to s accuse someone of not having agency is to, to accuse them of not really being a full person. Because if you are a person, you can affect the world around you if you're a normally functioning person. And there was an interesting uh, example of this a few weeks ago. Uh, Facebook banned several thousand of its members because they were calling their political opponents NPCs. Now, NPC is actually a video game term. It stands for a non-player character. Some call them CPUs. And a non-player character is a character in the game that is not controlled by a person. It's controlled by the computer and its actions are all scripted. It can make no decisions and its impact is really limited. Then the NPC has no agency. And so by calling your political opponent an NPC, you are, at least it, the way Facebook was looking at it, is you are dehumanizing them. You are denying that they have agency. We get that. that that's, that's something we understand you know, deep within us. So the question then comes, how do you explain that free will is so intuitive to us and it seems so real and that it's so central to our value as a human being if you don't accept the existence of God? And again, the, the most common response is that free will is an illusion. And you know that's what that article will say too. It's just an illusion that's convenient for us, for, for society and for, for healthy operation. But again, that's, you know, there's a pattern here. There's a disconnect between our lived experience and what that worldview says. They're in direct conflict. The last thing I'm going to talk about is the meaning of life. And I'd like you to consider something. I'd like you to consider a little boy who lives on a farm in the Ukraine in 1920. He's 10 years old, and his family is dirt poor. They can barely um, farm enough to, to stay alive. They have a few chickens. Unfortunately, his area was identified as being insufficiently enthusiastic about the new communist regime, and so Lenin told his, his henchmen to go and confiscate all their food, took away all their food, even took away all their seed grain. This brought on a tremendous famine in the area, Many people, five million people starved to death, including this little boy's family, including this little boy. We don't know his name. No record of him being buried anywhere. He's gone from history. No descendants, no family, no one remembers him, he's gone. Did his life have meaning? 
Let, let's broaden the scope. The fact of the matter is the overwhelming majority of the many billions of people who have lived on this earth are gone from history. No one knows their names. There are no grave markers for the majority of them. And honestly, we don't really care about them. We have nothing to do with them. Do their lives have meaning? And the sober reality is for those of us in this room and all the six billion people on this earth, there's a tiny fraction who will be remembered you know, a few hundred years from now. 200 years from now, now there, will, there will be no one alive who remembers a soul in this room. We might wind up as a database entry somewhere in some internet archive, but no one will know about us. No one will really care about us. Do our lives have meaning? Well, the first question is, what does the word meaning mean? And traditionally, meaning means purpose or significance or value. It's what we, we intend when we say, what is the meaning of life, the significance of life? Why am I here? What, what is the purpose of it all? And one thing you'll notice about that word is that it implies something bigger. You can't have meaning in isolation. It implies that you're in the context of something greater than yourself. Uh, I'll give you a, a bit of a contrived example. Does Luke's, Luke Skywalker is a fictional character. Does he have meaning? Well, in the context of the Star Wars story, yes, he does. Melvin Whipplethorpe is a fictional character I just made up. Does he have meaning? No, because he exists in isolation. There's no context. He's fictional. He's meaningless. So you can apply the same thing to us. When you ask if we have meaning, the answer to that depends on are we part of something greater? Now, as Christians who believe that we are um, created by a, a, a creator God, the, the answer to that is absolutely. We're part of a story which is the most profound thing the universe has ever ever seen. The, the creation of the world, the disconnect between man and God, the, the redemption, the, the you know, reconciliation and God's wooing of everyone to him. And because we have agency, we form a part of that and we have an impact on that story. So by extension, yes, we have tremendous meaning. If you reject the concept of God, that doesn't apply. If you reject the concept of God, the universe is here by chance. There's no third option. Either it was designed or it's here by chance. And if it was here by chance, it has no meaning. Therefore, we have no meaning. Now that, that seems really harsh, but that is something, again, which is almost universally agreed upon by philosophers. That having been said, few philosophers have really dug into understanding, okay, what does this lead to? What is the logical conclusion of this? But one who did was a fellow named Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived in the last half of the 1800s. And Nietzsche really wrestled with this. He saw that, that removing God was a tremendous thing. He, he wasn't a believer, but he, he recognized that removing God from the equation had had an enormous impact on, on how we view ourselves and, and the meaning of life. And he developed a, a, a philosophical theory called nihilism, or at least he refined it. And nihilism is really easy to explain. 
is that life is useless, pointless, senseless, meaningless, absurd, and his word, futile. That's a depressing thing to meditate on. And fortunately, that's not, um, that's not a path that many, that's not a path of life many people go down, which, which is good. But the question remains, how do you deal with that if you deny the existence of God? And I recently heard an interview by an atheist philosopher named Michael Roos. And he's, he's pretty well known in, uh, in philosophy circles. And they asked him, how do you deal with the fact that your life has no meaning? And Michael Roos said, well, wait a second, my life has lots of meaning. I've been a professor for 50 years. I've had a huge impact on thousands of kids. My, my kids bring me meaning. My, my grandkids bring me meaning. I have a very meaningful life. And, well, I'm, I'm happy for Michael Roos, but notice what he's done here. He's changed what the word meaning means. Previously, we said that meaning implied significance and purpose. And Michael Roos is saying it's something that brings me joy, something that brings me, um, uh, one of yeah, something that brings me peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. And so there's a subtle change there. Instead of something that is described in the context of a bigger story, these are things which put really crudely make me feel nice. You might ask the question, well, if meaning is about feeling nice, can I get meaning from taking drugs? Because drugs make me feel nice. And I'm not joking when I say I have a friend who would look you in the eye and say, the most profound, meaningful experience I have ever had was when I was you know, tripping on magic mushrooms. And he would go into great detail about how that experience shaped his life. But that's not the kind of meaning that we were originally talking about here. This new definition of meaning is one you might recognize if you've ever studied existentialism. And whoever came up with it is brilliant. And I don't mean good brilliant. I mean bad brilliant. I mean evil genius brilliant. Because by redefining that word, that allows people to completely jump over this really hard question of does my life have meaning, change the way meaning is interpreted and say, oh yes, my life does have meaning. I'm happy. But it's a trick that people play on themselves sometimes without even realizing they're doing it. It's like telling people, I have a million dollars, but it's, it's monopoly money. Like you might feel good about yourself that you're a millionaire and you might impress your friends, but it doesn't change the reality that you have altered the, the significance, the definition of that word. So for Michael Roos, he may have found a strategy of life that works for him, but he's pretending because his worldview says the logical conclusion of his worldview is that life is senseless, meaningless, hopeless, and absurd. He's just pretending that it's not. You see, those who, who, well, let me rephrase that. If God exists, we have significance whether we like it or not. We have no choice. We do impact the world for good or for ill. But if God does not exist, no matter how much we pretend, the end result is, is nihilism. 
which, which is futile. So in all three of those topics we've discussed, morals, free will, and meaning, those who reject the notion of a creator God are forced into a world worldview which directly conflicts with our lived experience. We act as though moral values are real, but it's an illusion. We act as though we have free will, but it's an illusion. Our lives don't have meaning, but we pretend they do. And to illustrate how ridiculous this is, I'm gonna close on an analogy. Let's say there's a scientist, his name is Bob. And Bob is unique in his field because he doesn't believe in gravity. And you're chatting with him and you say, Bob, come on, um, what about the, the orbit of Mars? Like Mars is held in its orbit by gravity, right? And Bob says, well, ho hold on a second. How do you know Mars is actually in orbit? Like there are many different frames of reference on which you can evaluate the motion of a planet. I would suggest to you that it's an illusion that Mars is in an orbit. Because if it was actually in an orbit around the sun, that would require gravity. And we know gravity doesn't exist. You think, wow, that's odd. Bob Einstein was like the father of gravity. He explained it more than anybody else can. He even predicted that the, the gravity of the sun could change, the, the, um, change light. It could bend light. And they proved that during a solar eclipse. Bob would say, oh, there's lots of things about deep space we don't understand. It can shift light in, in ways that we don't even, we can't even imagine. But I can tell you this for sure. It was not the sun changing the, the direction of that light because if it was, that would require gravity and gravity doesn't exist. You say, come on, Bob, listen, I'm standing right here. I'm being pulled to the surface of the earth. If it wasn't for gravity, I would fly off into space. And Bob says, well, hey, listen, until you've taken into, into account rotational inertias and quantum dynamic principles of, of relative intensities and motions and thermodynamic turbulence, you can't really say that you're being held to the surface of the earth. In fact, I would suggest that that is an illusion because if you were being held to the surface of the earth, that would require gravity and we know gravity doesn't exist. So Bob, why do we believe all these illusions? Bob would say, I don't know, that's a good question. We're gonna have to come to that. But, I mean, we know there can't be gravity. There's no evidence for it. Bob would soon be unemployed. But I would, I would venture to say that those who reject the notion of free will and who reject the notion of objective moral values and who reject the notion of meaning in life are even worse than Bob because for those of us here, we've never directly measured the orbit of Mars and we've never directly measured the bending of light around a solar eclipse. I'm assuming, maybe some of you have. And most of us can't carry on a, you know, a coherent conversation about all that, that physical gobbledygook I spewed earlier. But those things which we talked about, free will and meaning and, and, and morals, we get that. That's deep within us from the youngest kids here to the oldest, we get that. Those who would reject God are forced into a worldview that says every single person here is an NPC. We are all non-player characters. We can live our illusion, but the basic reality is we have no free will, morals are pretty much irrelevant, and our lives are utterly meaningless. 
that's something Paul would have said is futile. And so to the question, do we need God? I would say, yes, we do have need of that hypothesis. I'm gonna let Jeff give the benediction here, but I would say um, I will hang around afterwards if you if you do have questions or you want to uh, challenge me or disagree, please feel free. I'll